So how did you get interested in engineering? I was a first generation college student and you know the graduation rates for engineering at that level as a first gen college student are, are pretty are pretty bad usually. Would you advise other engineers to get their MBAs? I didn't know anything about accounting. I didn't know you know what private equity meant to be honest. What character trait are needed to be successful on always putting yourself in new situations where you have to change your communication style or you have to go out of your way to think about what what can I do for this group of people and, and how can I move this relationship forward. Welcome to the Careers Not Ladders podcast where we talk about unique paths of professional success and growth. Our guest today is Mallory McLemore. I have known Mallory for three years now, um, two of which were at Harvard Business School. But let's start with the formal intro. So Mallory currently is the CEO of Stell, which is a modern specifications and requirements tool built specifically for aerospace and defense industry. Now that's the industry Mallory knows very well. She has served in a variety of engineering, supply chain and quality roles in aerospace and defense industry. Her work experience includes stints at uh, Airbus and Raytheon. When she was at Harvard, she interned at Andurail Industries. She was one of the early and key members at Hadrian and did a lot of impactful work in a very short time. Mallory has a bachelor's in aerospace engineering from University of Alabama and an MBA from Harvard Business School. Obviously, I got to know Mallory at a personal level um, at Harvard. We were in the same section and um, uh, being in the same section means you take all the classes together for the first year of your MBA program. So you see all sides of one person. And Mallory is also an engineer by training, so just like me. So we had something common uh, going on back then. And I always look forward to what Mally had to say in the class. And who wouldn't? Like, she is a female engineer from Alabama who built cockpit doors at Airbus, missile defense IR detectors, and Raytheon, and so on. And I'm glad I could have her on the show. So welcome, Mallory. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's exciting to join you and be a part of the show, Carl. Thank you. So let's start with some early life questions. You grew up in Alabama and uh, like I'm coming from a different country and I don't know a lot of people from Alabama. So what would people who grew up in, say, New York City or San Francisco or Miami not know about growing up in Alabama? Yeah, I I think because the community is so small and you have a lot of free time because, you know, there's not so much going on like in a big city. You we really had a lot of freedom to kind of go out and play in the afternoon and be outside and kind of like go use our imagination with our friends and spend a lot of time together. And when I got older, I was able to really drive around town anywhere I wanted, even at 16. And I, I think that's probably abnormal for kids in cities because um, it's just so safe. And there's just so, you know, outside of school, like there's just a lot of yeah. free time. So you enjoyed your time in Alabama? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's beautiful, lots of nature. And I think just like a very peaceful upbringing, spent a lot of time with my parents. They were both home a lot. Um, so that's a awesome. Nice yeah. to be a kid. <laughs> yeah. No, that sounds good. Uh, so let's talk about engineering as a career because uh, it has been a big part of your life. So how did you get interested in engineering and specifically aerospace engineering? Yeah, so I I was always kind of like nerdy and I loved math and science, like even really young. But I got into engineering because in middle school, one of the teachers in Hoover, Alabama, he was starting something called the Engineering Academy. Uh, that was Dr. Mark Connor, and he actually encouraged me to apply for the Engineering Academy. And I was one of the only girls in my class um, that year. They started, we started with about 50 students, um, and we were taught yeah. engineering as freshmen in high school. And I, I stayed in the program, and I, I don't think I would have become an engineer 
without that training because it preps me for the math and science that I was actually prepared to go to college and be successful, even though I was a first-generation college student. Yeah. And, you know, the graduation rates for engineering at that level as a first-gen college student are, are pretty are pretty bad, usually. Yeah. And you, you said that you were the only girl in that academy. And that seems to be a common theme, like, if you go to your um, roles, the roles you take on in, like, Airbus and Atheon. But I'll come back to that. Let's talk about um, why University of Alabama. So, let me tell you about me. So, when I was young, when I was 17... I chose the university, which was furthest from my hometown. So I went like 1,500 miles. I didn't want to stay in my hometown. But you went to University of Alabama. Tell me about it. Yeah, I I actually, I didn't want to stay in my hometown. Uh, but a couple of things had happened with my family. So I, I had applied to other like schools like Vanderbilt and some very prestigious liberal arts schools. But um, Alabama offers a really strong scholarship, which was very meaningful to me. Um, so I actually had my full tuition paid for four years, uh, which wow. really, okay. yeah, which really set me up, you know, um, coming out of college and being able to be successful as an engineer. Yeah. Um, and we, we had some other things happen in our family. My senior year, my sister got in a car accident. And I think those kind of things, you can do all of this planning, but then, you know, things happen in your life and you yeah. want to be close to your family. And, and sometimes you need to optimize for that. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And this free tuition is like, it's no brainer. So uh, when you graduated from University of Alabama, uh, you joined Peace Corps in West Samoa. How did the opportunity come about and like, what was the experience? Yeah. So my junior year of college, I had interned and honestly, the internship was sitting at a cubicle doing a lot of paperwork. And so I was quite radicalized going back into senior year that I I didn't want to do that with my life. You know, I was 22 years Where old. Where was this internship at? It was at Airbus. And, okay. And I love Airbus, but like that internship and I think spending so much time in that enclosed environment was just such a shock to like a young college kid. Um, yeah. And I I wanted to do something really scary and ambitious. Like, like we talked about, I had never left Alabama. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up... Um, I went to this Peace Corps session because there was this guy I liked and he was going. <laughs> and and I was absolutely like the volunteers, the way they talked about their experiences and yeah. how it was, they say it's like the hardest job you'll ever love. Like, and you go to this completely new country, you have to learn a language, you have to build something in this community that, you know, you need them to also accept you. I, I found all of that extremely exciting and, you yeah. I liked the idea of teaching too, like because I had been so influenced by teachers um, to become an engineer. I really thought, let me go give back. Like I, I didn't necessarily, I wasn't really attracted to going and making a lot of money as an engineer at that point. What were you teaching to West Samoan people? I was teaching English. Okay. Okay. So that's awesome. You know, this, this, this very interesting experience and we talked about it before uh, when we were at Harvard. Uh but now you graduated an engineering degree and you talked about this internship you did um, at Airbus. And then you joined Airbus as a full-time engineer. So let's talk about that phase. What was the initial role? You stayed there for about three years, I think. And um, so how, what was the initial role? How did that role evolve? Uh, any major takeaways? Yeah, so I, I came home from Samoa and I, I called up um, my colleagues at Airbus in Mobile, Alabama, 
And they did have an open position. I interviewed for it like two days later. So I get home from Samoa and I start this job literally seven days later. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, which I don't, I don't recommend. It was quite jarring. Um, and I was called a version engineer, which basically meant that the version of something that would go on each aircraft, like Singapore Airlines or like I would, oh. help, I would help customize and deliver like the, the safety certifications and the engineering for that component. And I built cockpit doors, I built some seats, crew rest, and um, some lavatory work as well. So the whole inside of all the Airbus aircraft, um, I helped, you know, get across the finish line in that final two years um, for individual airlines. Wow. And uh, uh, when you look back, um, is there um, any major uh, learning? Oh my gosh. The guys on that team taught me so much. Like, I, I don't think I... I didn't know anything about the professional world. Like, cause my, you know, my parents had had um, more like trades type of jobs. Um, so just learning like how to implement process into what you're working on, how to communicate with others, you know, how to get buy-in from teams to get projects done, um, yeah. just how to stay organized when working. And we would actually travel to Germany or California and kind of going into these other environments and learning how to get buy-in, how to operate, like it was it was totally career changing for me to spend time there and to be mentored by mostly people yeah. who were mid or senior career uh, engineers. Yeah, yeah. And then then you joined uh, Raytheon for two years. Um, in what ways this experience was different from what you had at Airbus? Yeah. So actually, my last two years at Airbus, I ended up in this role called field engineer, which I lobbied for. And I actually went on site to suppliers for Airbus and helped them with engineering. Usually when there was a bit of trouble, like on one side or another, we weren't delivering the product. Yeah. And so when I switched to Raytheon, it was like first time I had like full ownership of what we call a program. And like I was the one going in the factory. It was my product and I had to answer to the customer if there was a problem or we missed a delivery. And, and so I think that was a big moment for me where you're in like the trenches with your team and that yeah. feeling of like delivering or not delivering with a team, I found extremely rewarding. Um, and yeah. I recommend everybody get that at some point in their career. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm just going to take a step back, sorry, um, <laughs> and maybe get a top level view. So Airbus and Raytheon, um, two large, big aerospace organizations like Behemoth. You did hardcore engineering there. And I doubt, and I think you mentioned it already, so I doubt you had a lot of female co-workers. Did you? <laughs> and yeah. why is that the case? Yeah, actually, most of my career, I didn't have female co-workers, but in my last job at Raytheon, I was on this team. We were making an anti-ballistic missile camera, and yeah. the team was actually mostly women, like incredible women. Um, I, I think something Raytheon did that was interesting is that they would hire... Um, people who had been like a bachelor's of chemistry or a bachelor's of biology into engineering positions. Like one of my best okay. friends there, she was a PhD in chemistry and they trained her as a systems engineer. So I think it's a little bit of like guys come to college at 18 and they know like, hey, I want to be an engineer and girls study math or chemistry, but they're, they're yeah. actually super talented you know, problem solvers, scientists, and they do extremely well in these engineering roles. And I think Raytheon recognized that. And so most of my team at Raytheon were female engineers. And um, it was actually a really fun and rewarding experience um, to be a part of that. Uh, but the Airbus, like, uh, you didn't have a lot of female co-workers. So 
Uh, I guess, but did you know about this when you were getting into Airbus or were you just excited that this is a challenge that I should take on? Yeah, I I guess I knew because even being in school, like getting my engineering degree, there weren't many women. And I, I think from a young age, I kind of accepted like, oh, I just like different things than other girls. And I, I always kind of wanted to be doing robotics with the guys or like taking the hardest like physics class. And, you know, the the other girls would kind of be like, why do you want to do this? And and I kind of thought it was like a, they were interested and I was just kind of unique. And so, and I never, I honestly never had issues with being the only woman on the team. I, I think sometimes people were surprised by me or would underestimate me. And, yeah. and that became more painful as my career went on. But I, I think also like people cheer for you and support you and and that can feel so rewarding that's you know that someone would go out of their way to help you and, and make you successful like I, I think that can be the flip side of being the only woman in the room yeah oh, that's so true um so i'm coming to point one d now um and let's talk about harvard business school um you have had good career already um you've done some challenging stuff why did you want to do an mba um honestly i I felt like it was going to be hard for me to live in California, the pay that I was making as an engineer. Yeah. And also, like, I really just wanted high level ownership. Like, as an engineer, I-, I kind of describe it as like I was in the trenches, right, solving problems. And I loved being technical, but a lot of the things that were the root cause of why we had delays or cost overruns were strategic. And yeah. I wanted a seat at the table to be able to solve those strategic problems because. I felt like I had a voice and a perspective, but I just wasn't even in the right room. And so I I actually, um, I drove up to Stanford GSB because they had this event for women. I, I didn't really know anything about the MBA. And I had such an amazing day on campus learning about communication styles and like how to present yourself and like how to think strategically. And I walked away from that day absolutely knowing I would apply to business school. Um. <laughs> So it was like a combination of factors, but I, I kind of like started the journey on a, on, I didn't know where I was headed um, in like the next 10 years, but I, I knew I wanted a seat at the table. Right. No, it makes sense. And I think um, I, I have similar stories. So like when I was at Ford in Autonomous Vehicles, was, we were looking into launching in different programs and realizing that launching an autonomous vehicle is just not an engineering problem. There's so much at stake, like so many stakeholders, so many legal issues, so many business issues. You had to make it cost effective. So yeah, I think I had a similar story. Like I wanted to make those decisions. Um, so that's, that's super helpful. Uh, I this is interesting. Like you and I were very few, one of the few engineers um, at campus, and um, and as much as world is becoming more tech oriented, uh, it's very surprising that you don't see a lot of engineers, especially at business schools like Harvard. Uh, I mean, I would say they were they were like fifteen percent in tech, but I don't think they were like engineer engineers. They were like salespeople working in tech companies and so on. So as an engineer, uh, would you advise other engineers to get their MBAs? And what advantages and disadvantages do engineers have when getting their MBA? Yes, I, I would say absolutely. As an engineer, go get your MBA. Because I, I think engineers right now are, or in the last 20 years, have been underestimated and kind of put into a box, you know, said, go execute on this this factory or this development and not, you know, again, how to seat at the table strategically. 
And I, I think you're actually now seeing the most successful companies in the world are run with an engineering mindset and things are totally flipping backwards to being about tough tech developments, technology, and the best leaders actually, I think, have a technical or an engineering background. But yeah, I think like you talked about, like solving problems, you know, developing like um, electric vehicles, like new types of like space products, like you need like financial and management knowledge. Yeah. Um, and, and I didn't have that. I didn't know anything about accounting. I didn't know, you know, what private equity meant to be <laughs> honest. And like, I, there were so many things about the world that I, I didn't know that even if somebody had promoted me to a management position in an aerospace company, I, I would have been at a disadvantage. And so HBS really gave me the literal knowledge and the confidence to go out and learn what I didn't know and like continue to see problems very holistically. Yeah. No. Uh, when I came to Harvard, I first time heard about consulting, which was surprising to many other people. But I totally get that. Um, so let's talk about um, the current thing you are doing right now. Um, let's talk about origin of Stell. What does Stell do? And how did you choose your idea and your co-founder? is workflow software for aerospace and defense and we help manufacturers at the moment where they're developing new systems so we have a tool that works a lot like notion and Airtable that helps them capture these like super high level mission requirements for a spacecraft or a drone and then translate those into designs with a complex team and large supply base and the core stell is about taking all of this text because we describe systems in geometry yes there's a 3d model but we describe systems in human language and a lot of that right now ends up in pdfs it's on some guy's computer when the systems first developed it it's not put into any kind of models or any kind of modern tools and so stell is all about empowering engineers um connecting them and reducing the paperwork is the ultimate goal. <laughs> and uh, how did you come? I mean, obviously you are into aerospace and defense and you wanted to focus on that industry. But did you play with other ideas? Like why did you come up with this specific idea? Yeah, I I didn't really ever think about becoming a founder. I didn't know anything about venture capital. And I landed HBS and everybody is talking about starting companies. And I had been thinking a lot about you know, like I told you, I'd gone all over the U.S. to aerospace and defense as suppliers. And then at Raytheon, I had seen all the systems that we had. And I was like, why is this the way this is? Like someone should go out and build something new. And I think in my first two weeks at HBS, I thought, what if I built something new? And so um, it was the pandemic. I would go to class during the day. And then at night, I wouldn't go out. I would literally sit there and I would write what I wanted to build and I would start to refine my ideas. I started calling people uh, and, and that was the origin was really a pain point and starting to look back through your life and recognizing what is the unique thread through all of these experiences I've had. And I think that was the first moment where I, I identified like a mission for myself and something unique about me where I could go out into the world and and produce something that was meaningful to people versus, you know, being on this career journey of like just trying to get paid, trying to find what I liked. Like, right. That was the first moment where I, I felt kind of in control of my destiny. That's awesome. Um, so, and and when is your co-founder? And I know in um for a long time before I even get into it, um, Harvard. So we were playing trivia together. So <laughs> how did you how did you find uh 
and and like how do you decide like you being CEO and Anne being the COO and what how how do Anne and you complement each other? Yeah, so I Anne and I were in the aerospace and the aerospace and aviation club at HBS, and we became presidents our second year. So we were always working on the club together, and we became friends that way because um, we were just super nerdy and we were both into space, and that made us like we the weird ones <laughs> on campus. And um, we. We went through like management challenges together with the club, um, which I think, you know, we developed a lot it's of a good trust. experience. Yeah. yeah. And we we understood how our different personalities, who was good at what, like a little bit going through that. And then Anne also, she actually wanted to become a venture capital investor. And so mm. she was so kind and she would always listen to my pitch, help me refine it. She was always actually for a couple of classes, like she helped me call customers. Um, so it was funny, like we had never discussed becoming co-founders, but she was the first person I called when back in October, I knew I was going to start the company and she was like, I'll help you. And then a week, a week later, we were both kind of like, what if we became co-founders? Like, this is so obvious. Uh, and it, it had started to take off so quickly that, yeah, we had about a, we came into an agreement about a week and a half on how to split the company and... I mean, I think I'm kind of this like ball of energy and I have this vision of what the product should be and what the problem. But Anne is like so good at setting up processes, understanding people, like moving things forward in a very structured way. So that's how we ended up splitting where I would be CEO, she would be COO. And yeah, to answer your questions about how we split things up now, like those strengths like continue to kind of um, amplify. Uh, And so, but honestly, in a very early stage startup, it's hard to split the work because we want to stay together on everything. But I think for the first six months, like that has been very correct uh, because it helps us build trust. And we're building this like pattern mashing of like, we know how each other think of something and work through it. And that will serve us through the rest of the journey of the company. Right. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. And um, I heard the good news and it's been a month, right? So you reached the seed round of $3.1 million. Talk about the fundraising experience, uh, especially when there are like two female co-founders trying to raise money for an aerospace and defense company. I mean, how obscure you want to be? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh my gosh. So, so we closed the pre-seed of 3.1 December 23rd, two days before Christmas. And we we started like early November. Um and yeah, I think something that it's interesting should be interesting to everyone is female founders, where there's not a male founder on the team, only raised two percent of venture capital last year, um, which I didn't learn until like a month ago. But that's absolutely crazy. Um, I I didn't think too much about being female founders during the process because you know I think we had a lot of connections from HBS and yeah. a lot of strong ties to our industry. Um, and but yeah, then looking back, you kind of see like oh. You know, if we had had a male founder on the team, like would that meeting have gone better? Would different questions have been asked, et cetera? Um, Can I ask like how many meetings you had, you did to get that? <laughs> I actually like, I don't know off the top of my head, but I'd say it was about 50 meetings. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. We, we closed the lead for around um, a female GP, um, Nicole Wissoff, um, like maybe a few weeks into fundraising. She's absolutely amazing. And then, um, finding that last check was actually got very hard because it was in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, but then we we met Third Prime and they were absolutely amazing. And they came in with a, a quite a large check, um, which so we ended up oversubscribed. So it's like uh. you, 
I think like for fundraising, knowing who you want to meet ahead of time and like who could be a good match for the deal like that you're offering is really important. And and we didn't do that well. We like we're so lucky we met Nicole. Like somebody uh actually made the introduction and Angel who invested in us made the introduction. So I, I think if you don't know all the firms you want to meet, having right. an angel on your cap table that can help you do that is important. Yeah. No. Because like uh, I think you face a lot of rejection if you just go to a meeting and you don't know anything about the fund. What are they yeah. trying to optimize for? Like, you know, of course they're like, no, we can't do a deal. So just knowing there's like a potential match ahead of time is really nice. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a, a question on like VC industry. And you mentioned Nicole Rishop, um, who is a female GP starting her own fund. Um, and VC industry itself not just the founders, the VC industry itself has like very few female investors or people of color investors. So, and you have been lucky and you have been fortunate that you met um, Nicole. So how much female representation in the VC industry is in general, not just to you, is very helpful for female founders and people of color. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it makes good business sense. And a lot of the best like investors that I met at HBS that wanted to become DCs like were women. They were amazing. They were super sharp. So I, I think these funds are missing out if they if they aren't hiring these really talented, really sharp women. Um, and I think throughout our fundraising journey, we just connected with women. Like I think in a lot of funds, like our first conversation is often with um, a female investor on the team and. I see them as really able to like build strong connections and a basis of trust that can help the deal. And so I think a lot of these funds, maybe we wouldn't have even gotten the chance to meet them if if that female investor hadn't hadn't heard through some of our angels or through Nicole um, that we were even yeah. fundraising. Um, so I think for a lot of these funds, maybe you don't see a deal because like you don't have that connection um, in your book. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So. Let's come to this segment, and this is a very philosophical segment uh, where I ask you to think about your life and um, like career and so far. So, I guess my first question is like, if you would not have been an engineer and you are a first generation engineer and first generation college grad, um, what other career path could you have taken? Oh my gosh, that's an interesting question. I I think like any kind of operational role, like I I was actually a waitress for a while after college. Like I can really see myself like running, you know, any kind of like small business operation, like like a restaurant or like a machine shop. Like I mm. I think I really enjoy that kind of work, like especially with a group of people you really like, like in a community that you care about. You know, I, I grew up my my dad's an entrepreneur. He he had a window washing business and now he's a real estate agent after retiring as a fireman. And so like just seeing him like be an entrepreneur, like with the small businesses and the way that impacted our lives, like I think I probably would have followed something similar. Yeah. Uh, ne the next question is, uh, you are an entrepreneur. You didn't know you were going to be an entrepreneur uh, until like late. Uh, what character traits are needed to be a successful entrepreneur? Like personality oh character trait. Yeah. Um, I... I'm extremely stubborn and I'm always questioning the status quo or if someone tells me like this is the way it is like just go along with it or just do this thing that immediately like a red flag goes up in my mind and I go research it more and I question it um, and so I think that's important because it allows when you're questioning everything it allows you to see 
what could change in a pattern. And that helps you recognize where there may be an opportunity um, to change something. I I think also um, really being able to connect with people and meet them where they are. I, I actually think being this young female engineer, like I had to learn how to like I said, like get buy-in from teams that were really different than myself. Like I, I was working with people in Germany. I had gone to the Peace Corps. I learned Samoan. Like I think just always putting yourself in new situations where you have to change your communication style or you have to go out of your way to think about what what can I do for this group of people and, and how can I move this relationship forward? That that helps so much with entrepreneurship. Um, and yep. I think think just passion for what you're doing is so important. Like, because I've experienced this pain point, like when things get extremely hard, that is what helps keep keep me going and, and keeps me working um, on the problem and moving in the right direction. Yeah. You said something uh, interesting that you're managing people now and you're hiring people and now you become people's manager. So I guess my question is like, what is the one thing your managers, prior managers, or previous managers said? Airbus and Raytheon did that you hated and now you make conscious efforts to not do it. Oh my gosh. Hated. I, I actually had amazing managers. Uh, You're lucky. Most of my, yeah. I, I, I mean, each of them, like, of course, like no manager is perfect, but they really let me have a lot of autonomy and all of my roles and like really trusted me um, to go and execute, which that was like the number one thing that I cared about. I think like there's one job where my manager's values like were different than the organization's values. And like, I I think you can see this like time and time again, like if you're in a super bureaucratic company, but your manager like wants to be more scrappy, I think as an employee, you're going to run up against like that larger culture. And so then it, it can feel like you're hitting a wall if your manager doesn't like actively help you change that that larger like cultural context and and so it can feel it can feel like too much pressure right when your manager's like deliver on this thing but like within the bureaucracy or the environment you're in like that's not valued and it's very hard and that can happen a lot at startups too like i i had a manager and and his values were different than what the organizations ended up being and i don't even think he he recognized that because it was so rapidly changing in a startup and like neither of the values was incorrect it was just they were different and so that that made it really hard to go out and like have a mandate to operate well. And so something I'm I'm focused on with Stella is like giving a clear mandate and roadmap, which now that it's on me, I'm recognizing is extremely hard, even in a small early team. Yeah. Just going up the tangent. So uh, you've done mission and vision statement, I guess, for Stella. So what are the values you're looking for and um, your, you want your employees to embrace? Oh my gosh. I, I should make sure I say the same ones from the website. The the number one thing, and I, I know this is on the website um, because it's so core, is um, we serve the hardware engineer. And that's a value because it requires to put aside ego and to listen to what the customer actually needs. Um, so like we say, like, if you want to be the person going and building the rocket, like you shouldn't work at Stell, you should go build a rocket uh, because we're actually all about how do we help people and organizations that do build rockets move forward better. And and I think that's actually like a different set of personality traits and like things to optimize for um, than being on the team where you like, you go out and you like build the amazing machine, you do it at all costs. Um, it's about, yeah. 
it's more about listening and kind of being in service of others. And yeah, yeah I, I think the other things I, I really look for are clear and open communication. Anne and I, our culture is very much about, you know, being being honest first and foremost and like everybody feeling like they can come to the table and share concerns or ideas and being heard. That's that's super important to us. And so being someone, I think you need to be confident enough to do that, um, you know, joining an organization. And then also like you have to be willing to put yourself on the line a little bit. Like if you share your idea uh, with a team, like that's a little bit scary. So looking for someone who's willing to be vulnerable and do that with the team is important. Yeah. Well, that's so insightful. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I guess, um, yeah, so just a couple of questions more. Um, this is a hypothetical question, and I've been asking this to all of my guests. And um, the question is, if you could have dinner with any historical figure, um, living or dead, who would you have this dinner with and what would you talk about? Yeah, so I've spent a lot of time in the last few months reading something that wasn't about business, and that was always Ayn Rand. So she she immigrated from Russia to the U.S. in the early 1900s, and her philosophy um, was objectivism or individualism. And I've become very interested in this as like a theme in my own life and a theme as like, you know, someone living this like very American dream type of arc um, yeah. where you're you're always pursuing like productive work. Um, and you're pursuing like bettering yourself and learning as much as you can and kind of self-actualizing um, versus like helping a collective or being some part of like collective values. And the biggest thing that I I love about reading her work is that she sees man or woman as like the hero of their own life. And uh, the way you treat others is to recognize that they're also an individual and the hero of their own life. And I I really like I like that value a lot. And I I think I think about it the older I get and the more I kind of have gone out and gone to HBS and like taken these huge risks. Um, yeah. And so I I think I would probably ask her lots of questions about my decisions <laughs> uh, if, if I had done the right thing and if I had optimized for the right thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that's, that's something to think about. Like I, I myself don't have good answer for those questions. So it's always fun to listen to what my guests are saying, and it gives me some ideas. Like, okay, yeah, and then is interesting. Um. Anyway, so the last question I have is an audience question. <laughs> hey, Valerie. Um. Feel like I just got off of six hours of calls with you, but. Uh, my question for you is, if you could go back in time three years uh, before you started your MBA, knowing what you know now, what would you tell yourself? Okay, so it was Anne, <laughs> my co-founder. Um, oh my gosh, she's so funny. She's like, I just talked to you for six hours. but um, And she, Anne asked me if I could go back in time three years, um, what would I want to tell myself? So three years, that was 2020. Um, the pandemic had just started. I was I had just gotten into Harvard Business School. So I was like extremely excited and nervous. And the whole world was changing under my feet. Um, I, I think I would tell myself to kind of listen to that inner voice um, even more than I was and, and to be confident in like really exploring what I wanted. I, I don't know if we talked about this, but I in my HBS essay, I wrote that I wanted to become a management consultant. Oh, and I okay. I quickly learned at HBS, like, I did not want to be a management consultant. <laughs> um, 
mostly mostly because I I had this obsession with this problem. I had a unique background and I think I was just, I was afraid to go back into aerospace that I still wouldn't have a seat at the table. And I saw management consultant as a way to solve for that. And and I think it, it would have in a way, but I, I think I knew I wanted to go back into aerospace and defense. And I knew I wanted to continue to be a technologist. And, you know, going going to one of these amazing management consultant firms would have just delayed me kind of facing that head on. And so I yeah. think if I could go back, if I could go back three years, I, I would tell myself to just face that head on immediately and to feel more confident in, in myself and my abilities. Yes. <laughs> Thanks so much, Marley. And I'll thank Anne for submitting that question. Uh, so it's been great. Uh, this is end of the show. Um, it's been great having you here. And it's always good to catch up with you. And I know you have had a busy year, like still and so much going on there. Uh, so it's great to be here and I've always looked up to you I'll be I'm not making this up like I am not making this up I I was always interested in saying what Mally has to say because she you always had something very insightful like you have consultants in the class and you have like private equity people in the class they talk in surface level but you talk deep stuff and I was always looking forward to it so it's always it's always fun to have you and I'm rooting for you and I hope still goes like really miles and future companies you start and uh, just remember me I'll be cheering from the sidelines thank you so much yeah it was great to catch up and I I found this a really nice way to reflect and kind of look back after these last crazy six months and and start to think about the future so I I really appreciate it and I I can't wait to see you uh, back in Boston in a month yeah see you there bye okay thank you (laughs) 